Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. In order to have justice, you have to have equal access to our court system. But one thing that can be clogging that up for a lot of people is the massive proliferation of debt collection cases. It's an issue that district courts are facing, but what can we do about it and how did it get to this point? We're going to speak with Angela Tripp, an attorney and project manager at the Michigan Poverty Law Program, as well as Lester Bird for Pew Charitable Trust. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, who returns tomorrow. One of the subjects that we really love to dive into here on Detroit today is justice and specifically justice for everyone in Michigan. I mean, that sense of fairness that we all understand from when you're growing up, right? If you're there with a sibling and someone gets two cookies from mom and you only get one cookie, that doesn't seem fair. So how do we deal with that? Well, normally you might go to mom or your parent or somebody, plead your case. You should say, hey, why does he get two cookies and I only get one cookie? Get a fair hearing on it and maybe one and a half cookies are now distributed to both people. Or maybe someone says, your brother's bigger. He needs more of a cookie. But whatever happens at that point in time, the way you get your justice is by going hopefully, to that independent arbiter, the parent, who can look over everything. But what if you can't get access to that parent? What if she's tied up, your mom or your father, tied up with other things? You can't get the hearing about your cookies. Should I be able to distribute these cookies differently? You need to get somebody to hear about it. And right now in our Michigan court system, it can be a little bit difficult for some of us to get some of these hearings, get what we feel like is a fair hearing, because getting in the door can be a little bit more difficult. And one of the reasons behind that is the vast proliferation of debt collection cases in Michigan. In fact, in looking at a chart that I have here that was produced by the Michigan Justice for All Commission, it notes that the second largest volume of cases that our district court face are debt collection cases, only outweighed by traffic cases. That means there's more debt collection cases in our system than there are for all other civil matters. It places a strain on our court systems, and it places a strain on those who want access to justice. But how can we fix these systemic issues? We know that there are big issues behind this because residents living in black communities are more than twice as likely to face debt collection cases compared to those in predominantly white neighborhoods, and that disparity persists even as incomes rise, hinting at perhaps underlying systemic issues. And these lawsuits are very profound, affecting low-income and black communities the most, as well as folks who maybe don't have quite as much money to even set aside for these matters. We're talking garnishments of wages, state tax returns, bank accounts that get threatened. It all makes it very difficult for folks who might be facing a little bit of a struggle and maybe didn't even get a hearing, didn't know that they had a hearing on their case in the first place. So what systems of reform can we institute to fix this problem, and how big of a problem is it? A little bit later, we're going to talk with a uh, proponent of a new change, or someone who's going to talk to us about a new change that's happening in 36th District Court to help folks have access to more hearings, online hearings, in cases revolving around uh, landlord-tenant matters and eviction cases. But before we get to that, we're going to dive into this issue of debt collection cases in our court system and where we're at. And to do that, we have two great guests with us. Angela Tripp is the director of the Michigan Legal Help Center and vice chair of the Justice for All Commission. Angela, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm happy to be here. We also have Lester Bird, a manager at Pew Trust, who manages Pew's civil legal system modernizing project, where he works with state courts and legal organizations encouraging data-driven reforms of court policy. Lester, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here also, because I think this is one of those things when people are trying to get into the court system. Not everybody has as much familiarity with court, but I think some of us may have a little bit more or people in our family more than we like to let on. And it seems a big driver that is some of these debt collection cases that we're hearing about and I'm seeing about. Can you tell us how big of a burden debt collection cases are in courts generally and here in Michigan, Lester? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at Pew, we studied uh, the civil courts and we've really focused in on debt collection lawsuits and sort of what's happening in these cases. And I think in your intro, you highlighted very well, uh, debt collection lawsuits are dominating state courts. I think people are surprised to learn in Michigan that that's the second most heard case type in district court um, in the state. Um, that's That's a huge volume of these cases that are coming to court. The other thing about these cases that people should know is most of the time defendants aren't engaging with the with the courts themselves. Nationally, we see about seven in 10 people who are sued uh, don't engage with their case, leading to a default judgment, which is an automatic win for the, the plaintiff, the business who's filing the lawsuit against them. And often that comes without any sort of court review of, of what's happened in the case and whether that money was even owed in the first place. Now, as I understand it, in order for a default to be entered, that would basically mean, hey, someone got notice of a hearing and chose not to show up. It might be kind of like if I bet with my friend that the Lions are going to lose on Sunday and they try not to pay me back on that bet. And then when I show up to their house, they're never there. Uh, is that what's happening here in these cases? If we're having these defaults entered, are they being entered properly or what's at issue if someone just chooses not to show up for their case? I think there's probably a a certain segment of people who are choosing not to engage with these cases, whether that's 70 percent of the the people who get sued. I I don't know if that number is quite right. Um, I think what we'd want to look at is sort of the barriers to participation. Um, Are people getting proper notice of their lawsuit? Are they being served appropriately? Is the information they're being given, is it plain language? Is it user-friendly? Is it understandable to a layperson? I mean, there's so many court forms around the country that you still see plenty of Latin on and plenty of really complicated language. And I think, you know, what really differentiates a debt collection lawsuit is the fact that we're dealing with people who don't have lawyers for the most part. And so we need to make sure that the, the content is understandable so that they can choose to make you know, whether they want to engage or not in that lawsuit. You know, I really do appreciate that your point you're bringing up, because I think about some of the mail that I'll even see at my home, and I'm sure listeners do, where, you know, you have things that they try to make them look more like an official document, but really it's just spam, or you get this message, you don't know who that's coming from. A lot of this can be really confusing, especially if you don't interact with the court system a lot. That's why I want to bring Angela, I want to bring you into the conversation, because I know you deal with folks who are going through that. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of uh, boots on the ground, uh, the difficulty that folks might be having when it comes to access to the court and receiving these notifications regarding debt collections? Are they even getting them or what's this issue, this barrier to getting to court in the first place? Um, It it can be a few different things, as Lester mentioned. I mean, sometimes um, people don't get the notice at all. Um, Mm. People move frequently. A lot of debt collection lawsuits are third party debt collection lawsuits. And so the original debt could be years old. Um, And the original debt could have been from Target, but that debt has been purchased two or three times. And so when the mail does come, it comes from LVNV and Associates. And, you know, you don't know who that is. You've never done business with them. So you might ignore it. So whether people fail to participate because they've moved and, you know, the, the debtor doesn't know where to find them. And so they do notice by publication that they'll never see, or whether they get the notice and it is from someone that they've never done business with, and so they assume it's a mistake or doesn't apply to them. Um, there's a lot of reasons that people that that people just don't understand the paperwork that comes to them. And even if they do recognize the debtor, if it's like medical debt, and they realize that oh yes, that's my hospital bill from three years ago, um, the paperwork. You know, the the Michigan court forms right now are pretty hard to understand, and the information um, about what to do um, is not very clear. We do have information on Michigan Legal Help um, to try to help people understand how to respond when they're sued. Um, We've got articles. We've got videos. um, We've got uh, do-it-yourself tools that help them file response, you know, file, draft and file an answer. Um, But even so, just navigating the system 
um, is is really hard without a lawyer. Yeah, I, I bet it is. And two of the things that you mentioned there, Angela, were really concerning to me. One, you were saying that some folks, uh, are you were you saying that people are getting defaults entered even when they don't have notice of the case? Have you seen anything like that happening? Is that something that's been happening here in Michigan? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm. For many people, the first time that they learn that they have been sued is when their bank account or their paycheck is garnished. Um, you know, Michigan laws right now allow for service by publication. If um, a plaintiff tries to uh, serve a defendant um, and isn't able to do so, um, but those publications are, you know, typically in the the legal news, which is a newspaper that no one but lawyers read, um, and so it, it it really means that people have no notice whatsoever. Uh, Angela, um, I can tell you, some lawyers don't even read the Michigan legal news. Let's just be <laughs> frank. But go ahead. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Um, And so people people have no they have no notice. And so the whole court case happens and they don't know anything about it. And then, you know, six months later, um, they get their paycheck and it's substantially smaller because it's been garnished by that same debtor after they've gotten a default um, judgment. One of the recommendations from the Justice for All Commission's report is to improve um, what we call process of service, which is how. Um, the rules around people getting served um, to make sure that that they require more they, that they require process servers and plaintiffs to do more to ensure that people get actual notice before a default can be filed. Yeah, I think that's really important. Also, you mentioned, you know, when there's a change, if a debt is purchased by someone else, maybe you get something in the letter from a company you've never heard of before. He said, I've had no interaction with that business. Why am I responding to that? Especially when we deal with so much spam in the world today, it can make these things and navigating this stuff kind of difficult as we're talking about the rise of debt collection cases and the impact that it's happening, uh, that it's having on our court system, making it harder for us to access the justice in all kinds of cases. Speaking with Andrew. Angela Tripp, who's an attorney and project manager for the Michigan Poverty Law Program, as well as Lester Bird, a manager at Pew Charitable Trust. But we want to speak with you as well. I mean, have you had interaction or known somebody who's had experience with debt collection issues in Michigan or just challenges getting into court in the first place? What challenges did they or you experience in that process? And do you believe our court system is fair? Why or why not? What changes would you make to create a fair judicial system or increase access to justice? What have you seen or heard from your friends about? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Lester, I want to loop you back in because uh, I think that you did help out with the creation of this Michigan Justice for All Commission report that we've been referencing through the course of this interview and this discussion And one of the things that I found really concerning in here is the indication that majority black communities experience a higher number of debt collection filings compared to predominantly white areas. And this is, as I understand it, correcting for uh, economics and class and status and all of those things. It's just simply related to majority black communities. Can you tell us uh, how we found this information out and what, if anything, we know is driving this? Yeah, so a, a couple of things there. Um, <clears throat> we know, first of all, that national, like, it, it's really hard to get numbers on sort of what's happening in these lawsuits. And so a huge credit to, to the state of Michigan and to the Justice for All Commission for being able to really dig into to these numbers. We also know that in the civil legal system, there's no demographic information kept about who is showing up to court, um, unlike in criminal court where that information is being, uh, being stored. That's just not the case in civil courts. And so what we do is we have to look at sort of neighborhoods to understand sort of the address of a person where they were sued uh, to get the characteristics of the neighborhood uh, that they were sued from. And like you said, what that report found was that people living in majority black neighborhoods were sued at twice the amount of those living in majority white neighborhoods. And that was true even when you looked at income levels. So if we looked at similar income in a majority black neighborhood and similar income in a majority white neighborhood. Uh, we still see that rate hold true where about twice as many lawsuits are being filed against people in majority black neighborhoods. And, you know, I I believe this is a, a part of sort of the, the conversation about systemic inequities and the racial wealth gap and, and the, the challenges that, that come with these conversations. And the JFA is really working to navigate these issues. 
You know, one of the things, Angela, speaking of navigating these issues, one of the recommendations you, you mentioned or one of the issues you mentioned was access to a lawyer for these things, for some people who aren't so familiar with the system and the process. Uh, is that something that you would advocate for then? Because we understand that in criminal cases, we found that there's a right to an attorney. But is this something that you would look at for more civil matters? Do you think that would help out with these issues? I do think that that more lawyers um, in civil cases would absolutely help. I mean, the the data that we have um, absolutely reflects better outcomes for people um, when they have lawyers. And so lawyers do, in fact, make a difference. The challenge is, um, you know, a volume challenge. I'm excited to hear you're going to hear. I'm excited that you're going to talk to someone from the the right to counsel movement in Detroit, because um, it is a it's a fantastic idea um, and it is a challenge to to staff up. Um, and to provide enough lawyers. And so, um, you know, that's why we also focus uh, our work on not just getting more lawyers to the problem, but also um, improving, the, uh, improving the legal system so that it's easier for people to navigate, even if they don't have a lawyer. So, you know, kind of working both angles, bringing more lawyers in, but also enabling people to navigate the system better on their own in case they can't have a lawyer. Yeah, that's very important. And when we return here on Detroit Today, we are going to continue this conversation that we're having right now about our Michigan courts, especially the civil courts and access to justice, things that we can do to make it a little bit easier for folks to get into the court systems, maybe unclog them. We're going to talk about some potential alternatives as well and speak with you when we return on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson discussing access to justice, uh, specifically at this moment in terms of some of the debt collection cases that we're facing here in Michigan District Courts. Michigan District Courts, the second largest volume of cases that they see are debt collection cases, actually, uh, something that can sometimes clog up, can make it a little bit more difficult to get into the court system, something that's a little bit difficult for some people to navigate through. We're trying to figure out ways that we can maybe make that a little bit easier, as well as hear from you about your interactions with the court system and what recommendations you might have as somebody who's been on the other side of it, not so familiar with how courts work. You can give us a call to join the conversation, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019 to help us with the discussion. As I mentioned, Angela Tripp, an attorney and project manager for the Michigan Poverty Law Program, as well as Lester Bird, a manager at Pew Charitable Trust. Lester, as someone who's been working with courts on trying to help unclog these things, you know, the idea of throwing more attorneys at a problem could seem to maybe make the system a little bit more uh, jumbled. But are there any other recommendations or things that you have seen in your research that can help uh, reduce these caseloads and help reduce this burden on our court systems? Yeah, absolutely. There are. I mean, there's opportunities to try to get people to engage more with their lawsuits before these cases come to court. Um, there's opportunities to try to get people to perhaps settle these cases when they do owe a valid debt. Um, and so that would keep people out of court. Um, there's also more opportunities perhaps for people to be able to assert in cases where they might be what we call judgment proof. Uh, the idea that, you know, they're on Social Security or disability that couldn't be uh, garnished from them. There's probably an opportunity there as well for, for those cases to not have to come to court if a creditor knows they wouldn't be able to get repaid. Um, and so I think there's, there's a ton of opportunities, and I credit the, the Michigan Justice for All Commission for, for listing out a whole bunch of them that they're, they're proposing and, and trying to work on. Well, Angela, we have you here. You've been, you're part of the Michigan Justice for All Commission. Let's hear some of them. What are some of the things you guys are proposing? Um, we, um, one of the things that's not in the report but that we have um, talked about as a potential is um, one of the things that Michigan Legal Help does is to uh, help communities build self-help centers, um, places where people can get assistance, um, use computers, use laptop or use internet, um, and get assistance from a trained navigator who's not a lawyer but someone who can help 
um, answer questions um, and give legal information. And we've, we've kicked around the idea of having a kind of a statewide virtual self-help center just for debt collection um, to uh, give people an avenue, um, you know, they could visit a self-help center and then via Zoom connect to um, a self-help center that just specializes in debt collection matters. Um, some of the other changes are to improve the court forms, uh, making them uh, more easily understood and including more information on them more prominently about uh, where people can get help, either legal aid or Michigan legal help, ways that they, um, possible defenses they can raise. And uh, those are those are some of the ideas that we have. And, and maybe, um, as I mentioned, uh, there are, you know, lawyers can be a scarce commodity. So finding ways to bring maybe paralegals in to help with some aspects of someone's debt collection case mm. um, early, early in the proceeding before there is court. And like, like Lester mentioned, trying to do what we call upstream interventions, getting people um, connected with mediators, maybe to if they, if they do owe the debt and they don't have any defenses, uh, we're, we're talking about a pilot project with mediation centers where uh, mediators could help debtors and debt collectors uh, reach a settlement agreement um, that works for both of them, again, before there is a court hearing. So yeah. those, are, those are some of the ways that we're, that we're thinking about how to address this problem. Yeah, I think one of the things that this goes to is the concerns that people that have when they go into a place like a court, you're not so familiar with it, it can be intimidating, getting a letter in the mail even for uh, something that is resolvable, maybe you have a good defense, it could still be pretty intimidating, uh, increasing that access to things. You're talking about like plain language documents, for example, or uh, maybe self-help centers, getting interactions with folks, intervening before they have to necessarily even get to court, and having a trusted place to do that. But in order to do that, we would need folks to have a little bit more trust with the legal system and the judicial system. And I can understand why some folks do not have that trust. Is there anything, Lester, that you've seen out there that uh, people can do to make or, or, or court systems can do to make their the, the environment feel a little bit more uh, conducive for people to get involved, where they feel like they will actually have access for justice and an opportunity to be heard? Yeah, I, I think there are. I think like Angie's talking about with mediation programs and things like that, people want to be heard in these cases and they want to know what their options are. And I think that will naturally increase trust if we can sort of build on build on programs that will allow people to get to communicate with someone who can in plain language explain, you know, this is what's happening. These are the rights you might have in these cases. And these are sort of your options. And generally, we see that doesn't sort of improve trust in the courts. Um, but it is important to sort of center the, the trust in the courts conversation a little bit as well. You know, trust in debt collection courts is different than the sort of trust in the courts generally. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of distrust in, in courts from whether it's from the criminal side or other civil matters uh, that sort of lead to that distrust. And so I think for the courts, it's sort of a, a larger question than just building trust within this particular case type. Uh, but how do they build trust with communities writ large? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's something we're going to be investigating a little bit later on in Detroit today. Also, I did mention, of course, one of the things that we'll be speaking about a little bit later is a project that is happening to have virtual first hearings in eviction cases, for example, a big move happening at 36 District Court, which is Michigan's by far largest district court. I think half the cases uh, in district courts that Michigan faces go through 36 there that serves to operate Detroit. So that will be a good conversation, but always someone who helps with our conversation is Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Good morning. One of my biggest complaints is that if I want to represent myself because I can't afford an attorney, um, there isn't, for example, a posting of the steps involved in filing a suit. What suits do I file in 36 district court and what forms do I need? When I go... Um, to, like, for example, small claims. There's no listing on the board of the things that I need to do in order to file a, a suit or what court handles what complaints. Yeah. Fair point. I bring that to you, uh, Angela, as you're someone, again, who has interactions with people who maybe go through things, although I do believe you might be more on the side of defending cases a little bit more. What recommendations would you have for someone like Bernadette? 
Well, um, Michigan Legal Help it is a website at michiganlegalhelp.org, and we have a lot of information, you know, for people who are representing themselves. And we do have information about small claims, and so um, we we do help people on both sides of a lawsuit. Um, and small claims is an area where people always have to represent themselves. Yeah. And we have information there and forms as well that is use- that can be useful. Um, and there is information that will help you. Uh, determine which court to file in as well. So that's one resource for people. And I'm also really excited to share that it, it is it is early days, um, but we are working with the 36th District Court to open a self-help center there sometime in the future, um, which will provide um, on-the-ground assistance for people as well. So we're very excited about um, that coming in the, the midterm future. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Can you share a little bit? I know it's in its infancy, but some of the things and resources that you're hoping to have in that center that people would be able to access at 36th District? Yes, well, there will be um, computer stations um, so people can access the Michigan Legal Help website. There will be um, either staff at the courthouse or uh, remotely via Zoom staff at Michigan Legal Help as remote navigators who can walk people through um, finding what they need on the internet on Michigan Legal Help and walk them through filling out the forms if they need assistance. The the self-help center will have printers um, and information on what to do next if they are, for instance, filing a small claims case, uh, telling there's information telling them the next steps of where to file and how to file and what the filing fee will be, how to request a fee waiver if there is one, and that sort of information. You know, one of the things, speaking of, you mentioned virtual access, you mentioned people being available by, for example, Zoom or video conferencing. When we went through the pandemic, when we were in those throes of the pandemic and shutdowns, access to courts got shut off for a while, and then virtual hearings were utilized, something in a large amount that courts were a little loath to get involved with, but uh, became something that they relied upon in order to get hearings. A little bit later, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Detroit's pilot program to allow uh, virtual hearings for first case evictions, your first hearing in an eviction case. Is this something that perhaps could be expandable to get people a little bit more access to courts? Is this something that you'd recommend, Lester or Angela, or is this something that uh, that we've seen in other places that works well when it's expanded, or does it cause more confusion or issues? What have you seen? I'll start with you, Lester. Yeah, so this is something that can absolutely work well. Um, We're seeing some early indications from studies during the pandemic that people welcomed uh, being able to go to court online. And not just defendants, but also plaintiffs and the creditors' uh, attorneys who represent plaintiffs seem to to and you know appreciate the the ability to go to court online. We're hearing from judges who have appreciated the ability to go to court online, and we're seeing the services that could be deployed in an online environment. Uh, you know whether it's virtual self help that could log into these these court sessions and talk to people about their cases before they have to go talk to the plaintiff. Um, you know, so we see lots of potential positives from bringing court online. Yeah. In terms of what you've seen, Angela, do you concur with that? Or what has your experience been with online versus offline hearings and representation? It's it, as Lester mentioned, during the pandemic, you know, we saw we saw a lot of things and a lot of Michigan court functions were online. And there, there are absolute positives. Um, more, we, you know, more people were engaging in court because it was easier to do so. You didn't have to drive and find parking and get child care. But there are also people for whom it was not easier, Um, people who didn't have reliable internet or didn't have a device or who just were unfamiliar with the technology. So as with so many things, it was, it was a benefit for some and a detriment for others. Um, And the the topic of virtual hearings is one that is still hotly debated um, in Michigan's court system. Um, And, you know, at the justice for all commission, we're, we're trying to, you know, propose solutions that allow that allow people to 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 use an option that works best for them. Either if it's going to be a remote hearing, having a, a place within the court where they can do that remote hearing, um, or or just making it easier for for litigants and the court to figure out together. Um, how to hold the hearing. Yeah, yeah. Again, learning from each other. The point I would hope for all of this would be that we understand that we're looking for justice here, uh, not necessarily looking to railroad anybody at any stage of these hearings. I know these are adversarial uh, proceedings, but uh, I would hope courts, judges understand the goal 
is justice is trying to get to the correct uh, understanding, the correct uh, ending in terms of these hearings. And so in order to kind of put a bow on everything that we have going on here, I'm going to start with you, Lester. Uh, If there's one thing, one takeaway that you would want people to have when it comes to your research on these debt collection cases and how we could move forward in Michigan, do a better job with them for people, what would that be? Yeah, uh, cutting it down to one is probably hard, but I would just highlight for people that this is a sort of trend in debt collection lawsuits that's gone relatively unnoticed by policymakers across the U.S. in the past 20 years. This rise of debt collection lawsuits, the rise of the debt buying industry, and debt buyers bringing these lawsuits is a trend that's gone unnoticed and deserves examination. And so I think, you know, it's welcome uh, to see the Justice for All Commission in Michigan really take earnest efforts to change the entire court process for folks in these cases. And so, you know, the consequences of these cases can be so severe for people when you're talking about garnishing, you know, 25% of someone's wages or you're taking their bank account all the way down to zero dollars. You know, these cases deserve more attention than they've gotten from policymakers in the past 30 or so years. And so we need to make sure that we're paying attention, we're making the updates. And I think we we celebrate what Michigan is doing in these cases. Yeah. You know, in fact, that actually does make me think of one other thing, because I know from what I would see, and this would happen with mortgages and things like that, right? When these debts get bought by different companies, and in order for you to bring a case, you would theoretically, you need to have proof that you actually have the the debt, right? And when you're getting these defaults entered and these uh, debt collection organizations are filing so many cases. They, sometimes it can get a little sloppy with the paperwork. Do they have evidence in support of their claims? If it actually went to trial, would they be able to prove up the case? Or are they just railroading the system so hard that they never actually have to put up with the evidence? And if they, you actually made them trial their cases, they wouldn't perhaps be able to uh, to to actually support all of that. Is that is that something that we've seen here, that this mass litigation, do we know how much evidence they have in support of these things when they're buying and selling these debts or what's allowing this to even occur in the first place? It seems kind of puzzling to me, I guess I would just put Lester. What have you seen? In, in the state of Michigan, no, we, we don't know. Uh, the, the documentation requirements don't don't require um, all, all of that information to be filed, um, whether someone shows up or not. We do know in other states, though, that we have seen states who have required that plaintiffs, you know, send in documentation and proof that they own these accounts and proof that that, that account belonged to that person, uh, whether that person shows up or not. Yeah. And what we do see is, you know, case filings can come down from that. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, the sort of recommendations that we would encourage for the Justice for All Commission in Michigan is to really improve those, those documentation requirements uh, to make sure that, you know, the paperwork is there. And that someone in the courts looking over that paperwork before they issue any sort of judgment in the case. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I'd have to agree with that. Is that something that you would consider, Angela, or advocate for? Maybe uh, increasing these filing requirements on these debt collection cases. It's something that is actively being considered. Um, we have a our debt collection work group is is you know one of the recommendations from the report was to modify the pleading requirement to require that 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 documentation be attached. And the work group is considering that right now. And how this works is that the work group will propose a change to the court rule. And then that court rule will, that proposed court rule will go to the Supreme Court. um, And they can decide whether to take it up, um, if they want to think about enacting it. And if they do, then it will be published for public comment. People will have the chance to comment and there will be a hearing where they can comment in person. Um, and then the Supreme Court will ultimately decide whether or not those rule changes will go into effect. So it is something that that we are we are definitely going to propose, but we do not have the final say on. Well, if people want to get involved, you mentioned that there's an opportunity for public comment, which I know hasn't happened yet. But how will people find out or learn uh, their way that they can get involved and make that public comment? Where should they look to get that information? Um, the information will be on the Michigan Supreme Court's website. Um, we will also, uh, at Michigan Legal Help, we will also do our best to publicize it uh, through our social media outlets um, right. because the court's website is not always easy to navigate. So those are two places that they can look. All right. We'll try to get it on our website also. Uh, Angela Tripp with the uh, Michigan Poverty Law Program, as well as Lester Bird for Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you.
When we return, we are going to look into that uh, new program that the 36th District Court has announced, allowing virtual first hearings in eviction cases. We'll take a look at how they hope and how advocates hope that can help people in eviction cases, as well as other work going on to protect folks dealing with housing issues in Detroit. We're going to talk with Tanya Myers-Phillips, project leader for the Detroit, Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition, when we return on Detroit Today. WDET brings you news about your neighborhood. WDET plays music from the Motor City. WDET amplifies the voices in our community. WDET is your public radio station. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson, who will be back in the big chair tomorrow. But right now on the show, we've been discussing ways to make our court system fairer for you here in Michigan and in Detroit. And one way that advocates are hoping that this can be a little bit better in terms of 36 district court, which oversees the district court cases in the city of Detroit, is a change to increase access to justice for those facing evictions. Beginning next Monday, defendants in eviction cases will be allowed to attend the hearing virtually. They'll be allowed to attend that first hearing uh, over Zoom or online virtually. But why is this important? And will this change create more fairness in eviction cases in Detroit? I'm joined right now by Tanya Myers-Phillips, the project leader of the Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition, to get her thoughts on these changes as well as other things that we can do to increase access and fairness and rights to counsel for people in Detroit. Tanya Myers-Phillips, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Nick. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm glad to have you here. I know you've been running around a little bit. You were out of town on, uh, yesterday. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the first thing you're doing when you're coming back is speaking with us. But we appreciate that you made the time. Uh, I really did want to talk to you because this change, I know, is something that you've been working hard for in terms of uh, what you guys have been doing with the Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition. So I'll just let you let us know. Why do you feel uh, what will this decision do, first of all? And what do you think? Why do you think the decision to resume virtual hearing hearings in these eviction cases is so important? Well, this, this will essentially help individuals be able to obtain legal counsel and be able to connect with legal counsel. A lot of the listeners on your show may be aware, some may not be aware, that the city of Detroit passed a law last year that provides a right to legal representation for low-income Detroiters facing eviction. So for households whose earnings don't exceed 200% of the federal poverty level, if you're facing eviction at the 36th District Court, you have a right to an attorney a free legal services attorney to be able to represent you. And that is pretty important. So I wanted to, you know, provide that foundational information. That's very important. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes. We're familiar with right to counsel in the criminal context. So we know if you're accused of a crime and you're low income, the state will provide legal representation for you. We know, you know, you don't want to start talking about your case before you talk to an attorney. And it's significant because last year in Michigan, Detroit became the first city to not only provide a right to counsel, but to provide that free legal representation. So that's critically important for people to know. And this rolled out during the pandemic when all the hearings at 36th District Court were virtual, all of them. So right to counsel rolled out in a virtual context, which makes it easier for people to connect and get legal representation. Then the court changed the policy and went the 100 percent the other way in June and said, no, no, no. Everybody has to come in person now. Well, what we saw in that uh, 30 day period was a significant reduction in people that were finding their way and able to successfully connect with attorneys in the 36th District Court. So we saw nearly a 43% drop-off in individuals who were 
talking to attorneys. And that, that happened for a number of reasons in the court setting. But what we've learned, long story made short, at this point, it is, appears to be easier for people to connect with attorneys for the first time and start that attorney-client representation and uh, get the representation they need in court to successfully represent their side of the story. And that increases the likelihood that a person will not be wrongfully evicted and stay in their homes. We know Detroit residents are 18 times more likely to avoid eviction and stay in their home when they're represented by an attorney, someone who knows the law and can make the case for them. So our advocacy in this was centered from the perspective of what's easiest for the community to connect and make that connection with an attorney quickly at the beginning of the case. And that seems to be virtual proceedings. So mm. um, just want to share a little yeah. bit of that background. No, that's... It was kind of virtual, then it was in person. So right. we're kind of meeting halfway to where we were well, uh, last year. Right, <laughs> right. And, and I want to unpack this a little bit more. First, I want to put a pin on this again. In 36 District Court, if you are facing an eviction, you do have a right to counsel. It's not a constitutionally protected yeah. right. That's something that Detroit has implemented. Please take advantage of that. It's very important because the goal here, again, no one should be wrongfully evicted from their home. It should go through the proper process. We want to make sure everybody right. is represented. However, Tanya... I do wonder about, I want to make this connection. I want to understand, you said that if people attend virtual hearings, they were more likely to find an attorney. I'm trying to figure out what the connection is between that, if you know. Uh, Why is it that virtual hearings, these first virtual hearings, will lead to more people finding attorneys than if they have to go to court? Bob, two issues. One, in the virtual proceeding, your first hearing is Essentially, you are your case is going to be adjourned for you to have the opportunity to connect with an attorney. So when those hearings are occurring virtually, people are placed into a break, virtual breakout room. There are about 100 breakout rooms. So you're able to talk with an attorney or a legal assistant while the attorney's getting the queue. And it's as simple as uh, click, clicking the Join, join this vir- virtual breakout room. So more people were making that connection quickly at the first hearing. What we observed, um, and we had court observers, voluntary court observers going into the court during this period, is in some courtrooms, it, you know, that announcement or representation that you had a right to counsel wasn't happening quickly or at the beginning of the hearing. Or individuals would talk to an attorney, but perhaps the attorney that is representing their landlord to evict them and cutting the deal mm. or it wasn't clear where in the world is where are the legal services attorneys and they're not you know making that connection in the physical space and the physical space is, is a bit small so it's a bit of challenge so you can have attorneys in the fourth floor yeah, room 417 room 5a or just because of the lack of space they could be in the hall they could be in the stairwell it's just not ideally configured for a lot of people um, coming through at the same time. So that part needs a a bit more planning, I would say. So people are getting lost, lost in the, in the, in the mix at at court and and dropping off. And also when you're coming to court, I'm very proud of our community members and command community members for making the extra sacrifice Mm -hmm. to come to court in person, but it is a sacrifice. You have to pay to park. You're missing time from work. You're missing time away with um, if you have child care arrangements or uh, disability concerns are challenging. So another element of the difference between virtual and in-person proceedings that we observe, if you're in a virtual hearing, you can pretty much carry on about your day until it's your turn to talk to the judge. And then you can find a quiet little nook and proceed with your case. But if you're in person and you're on, you're missing time from work, you're, you know, looking to get back in the clock. It's you, sometimes you can't wait in the in the in the physical area for a long time. You have to get back to work. You have yeah. to get back to what you're doing. So we, we saw those concerns and those difficult choices that people had to make in court as well. You know, mothers with very very tiny children until at court, and it, it's difficult. It just is difficult. So it's 
a number of reasons that are some are simple, some are complex. Certainly. I understand that. uh, No, I do appreciate Mm -hmm. that. You bring up those two points that you had mentioned. I do want to jump in, though, to make sure that we have time to hit some of these other questions. And one of those that I had for you is, of course, increasing the virtual space. That's great for people who have access to Internet. But I mean, you know, if you're facing an eviction, uh, it would seem that you might be someone who might not have as ready access to the Internet, might not have as ready access to a phone or maybe you're just someone who, you know, like my mom's not necessarily the most technically mm-hmm. savvy and might, can have some difficulty going through those hearings, might even end up to you not being able to make it on in time. What are the response? What do you have for people who aren't able to uh, attend that virtual hearing? What uh, options are there for those folks? Well, the best option, as uh, as Angela said earlier, and I definitely appreciate the work that the Justice for All Commission is doing, is to align with the current court rules and provide people choice, provide people options. You know, everybody's situations and circumstances are, are different. So what we've been seeing is the majority of people connect with an attorney better in virtual hearings. But as you mentioned, that's not everybody. So if you allow people the choice, you know, with a presumption of virtual hearings, but allow people to come in person, if that works better for their situation, that's really where where we want the court to to be and what seems to align with best practices in the court rules right now. Yeah. And, you know, I do want to make sure that I take a look at the whole side of this, because when you're dealing with these cases, first of all, facing eviction is never fun. It is not something that we want people to go through. But there are cases where it is sometimes necessary. There are situations where it comes up and you'll have people on the other side of this who I'm sure are thinking, well, wait a second. A lot of stuff is being done to help protect folks on the other side. Meanwhile, at added expense, you know, they have a free attorney. I have to pay for my attorney. So if they're constantly going to court, if they have to attend all of these hearings, those prices are going to increase up for me just to get justice that I think I'm entitled to because of the fact that uh, to, to and my argument is that uh, this is an individual or this is an individual for whatever reason. It's not been paying their rent. And so I need to get them out of this place. What do you say for the folks who are saying the pendulum has swung too far the other way, adding expense to uh, landlords, plaintiffs who are bringing these lawsuits? Yeah, well, we have to look at the law and we have to look at data. So right now, if you're if you're a corporation, you have to have an attorney representing you. So that's a, a bit, you know, out of our hands. It's been the case for a long time. So if you're a mom and pop landlord, you're not, you know, having incorporated. Yes, you can represent yourself, but if you're a corporation, you need to have an attorney at 36 District Court. So that's one thing that exists before right to counsel, and and that that's what it is. And there are a lot of reasons why. Um, corp- you know, we could get into another conversation. About uh, there are valid reasons why corporations <laughs> need to have attorneys. I, I'll grant you that. Go ahead. Okay. So that's one. And then looking at the data before right to counsel, you had 96% of plaintiffs that secured legal representation that were able to have their interests represented by the court. Experts who know the law, know the inside uh, maneuvers, Right compared to 4% of tenants before right to counsel. Thank goodness with this ordinance passing and with additional funding, it's not fully funded yet, but I mean, we've certainly come a long way. Now we're up to about a third, a third of people receiving the full legal representation that they need and deserve. So, you know, I do hear the arguments, but when you look at what the requirements are under the law and the actual data there, you don't have a shortage of landlords um, who don't have representation. You know, it's really, you want the scales of justice to be balanced, and it's really those low-income, vulnerable Detroiters who have for uh, decades, or really since the existence of, you know, this body of law, have been at um, a systemic disadvantage coming to Detroit. So this is a coming to 36 district court, coming to eviction proceedings, period, not just Detroit, but statewide. So we're at an interesting point in history where we are seeing a shift to balance those scales of justice and make equal access to justice more than a phrase under the law. 
right? right. But make it a reality. And that's what Right to Counsel is doing. All right. Well, Right to Counsel, since I have you on the phone right now, what other things do you think or would you advocate for a 36 district court as well as all the district courts in our state to do to increase that equal access to justice as you refer to it? But absolutely, right to counsel is, is one piece. Community outreach and education is another piece that's so critical. And I'm glad you've taken the space and provided this forum on your show to let people know how to get help. Help is here. So I want people to um, don't take away anything else if you're facing <laughs> eviction at 36 District right. Court or any court. Ask for the proceedings to to pause for a minute so you can talk to a free legal services attorney. And I would like the courts to take a proactive role in making sure that individuals know their rights, you know, not assume that people know. A lot of people don't know this is a very new paradigm that we're in. So take a proactive community outreach role. And three, we need to explore diversion programs as well. And basically what diversion is is coupling um, the right to counsel with other supports like um, rental assistance or uh, social workers, basically being able to find resources for people where if they can't be worked out, there's a soft landing mm. and you're not contributing to additional homelessness and displacement. So three prongs, honor the right, let people know about the right. And then be more involved with community partners to provide those holistic supportive services. You know, I really do appreciate that, Tanya, because sometimes we think it's got to be one way or the other way. Sometimes there's a third way. Maybe, again, linking up somebody with assistance that they can get from elsewhere to help them out with these problems could be a good third solution. But we're going to have to end it there. Tanya Myers-Phillips, project leader for the Detroit Right to Counsel Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for us today on 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when Stephen Henderson returns to discuss with uh, discuss the No Labels Party that's being put on by former Representative Fred Upton, a third party. Are third parties viable in Michigan? Can they make an impact? We're going to take a look at it when he returns tomorrow on Detroit Today. <laughs>